Hey there, welcome to the Faces of Marketing podcast, where we talk about the human stories and lives of different people and perspectives in the marketing profession and entrepreneurs and movement makers. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm here with my good friend, Kali Ladd, who is one of the most dynamic social entrepreneurs I know and co-founder and executive director of Kairos PDX, which started as a charter school in North Portland, primarily for kids of color, and it has started a movement in Portland for delivering equitable education for underserved kids, their families, and the community. Welcome to the show, Kali. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> it's going to be a little coffee talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like we do, actually, before we even jump right into the beginning of the podcast, I just want to tell the audience that it's been really fun to kind of have our friendship develop over the past two or three years. Uh, I'm a personal supporter of Kairos PDX, and um, I think it's really great for the audience to know how entrepreneurial you really are. Um, you're starting this um, event around celebrating equity and also bringing food and wine into that uh, for something that we're going to do together in June. And we'll announce that maybe not even on this podcast, but I just, I want to kind of set the stage for, I think so many of us think like, Oh, you're either a for-profit entrepreneur and you're a full on capitalist and you know, uh, or you're this like total do-gooder nonprofit, you know, start this and give back in that way. But I feel like you're a really perfect blend of both because you're looking to do, um, kind of take the best of both worlds and, and, um, bring it into what you do. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think, uh, I like to be disruptive, uh, the things that we normalize and it's been an interesting journey. I have only more recently recognized myself as an entrepreneur because I think at a young age, I wanted to change the world, but I didn't know how. And I was very anti-business <laughs> for a long time. And then I began to understand the role that business plays in society. And I think that there is a lot that business does uh, for society. And I think there's a lot the nonprofit sector does. And I think it's the fusion of both, the coming together of both that makes our world a better place. Awesome. Awesome. So we're going to get to that later in the podcast, but... Uh, I did want to set the stage, and then we're going to start, as we always do on this podcast, of starting at the beginning of how you grew up. And I know you've got some New England roots, roots to you, but you also maybe moved around a little bit in the in the East and Midwest. So talk to us about that and what it was like growing up. Yeah, so... I consider myself really fortunate in that I grew up with a really tight-knit family. My parents have been married 44 years. I have a younger brother. He's just shy of being four years younger than me. And um, a lot of love in our home and uh, a lot of safety and security. Um, so my childhood was really good from a family standpoint. Um, and all of my extended family were friends with one another. So my parents met in college, and they are older in their families of siblings. So their younger siblings met each other in their teens and younger. And so the, the it was very common to have a combined family with my mother's side and my dad's side all coming together, all the grandparents. And so really a strong sense of family in my life. Um, I was born in Philadelphia uh, and had my preschool years in upstate New York, and then my parents um, moved to Massachusetts, uh, which is where I spent uh, most of my formative years. 
I lived in a small town uh, 45 minutes north of Boston, so I grew up in a smaller community. I think the biggest thing is we were the only uh, African-American family in our community. So while I had this really close, safe family, I had a very isolating experience in a lot of ways in childhood. And I think it shaped why I do the work that I do now, but uh, definitely had a, a lot of experiences sprinkled in that dealt with feelings of isolation and not fitting in. I think when you're a young child, you want to have a sense of belonging. And it was something I yearned for uh, often that I never felt I had, though I had friends and I had, you know, great people in my life. Um, but I definitely was aware that I was different and I, it made it so I was always recognizing difference everywhere I went. I always recognized the people. I remember there was a, a girl I think it was in middle school who had um, a disability and I was very aware of her and being kind to her because she was different. Um, and there was one other girl who was Korean in my class. She was only in my class for a year in elementary school. We had a small town, so we were all in the same class every year of elementary school. Uh, I had experiences with teachers who just either I was in trouble because I was more noticeable or I was ignored. And so I actually didn't have any inspirational teachers in my life until fifth grade. And um, my teacher, Mrs. Goggin, uh, told us she was a, a witch, a Salem witch. We I lived in Beverly, Mass, and Salem is right next to Beverly, and it's where all the witch trials were. And she was the first teacher who really seemed to notice me and like me, and I loved her. Uh, she, she was the best. Bold. She is bold. This is Goggin. I wonder where she is today. Um, but she was amazing, and she was. I think she saw herself as an outlier in a lot of ways in this sort of traditional, conventional, small New England town. Uh, she was zany. She's someone like you might meet in Portland. <laughs> um, but it was it, I, maybe that's why we connected. Uh, I also, you know, played outside a lot as a kid. I, my brother and I were able because it was a safe space. We were able to go and play, and there was a lot of woods around us, and we would just have to come back by dark. And so my girlfriends and I would ride our bikes around, and there was just a lot of freedom in that to explore. I think at a young age, I began to love nature and being outside in the outdoors. I played sports, uh, mostly soccer, for most of my life, and I, I danced. I, I, I danced ballet as well. But soccer was definitely an important social piece in my life. I was very shy. People, I tell people I'm introverted, and they don't believe me now. But I was... Um, a very shy and I think part of it was just being different and not wanting to stick out and so I often had teachers say to me in class speak up I can't hear you uh, I was so nervous to talk and then as you referenced I did move in middle school seventh grade we moved to New Hampshire and uh, I think I was more aware of some of the racism when I was in New Hampshire. I had started to experience more concrete things. I remember in sixth grade in Massachusetts, uh, kids teasing me and the bus driver just kind of looking at them. And I was wearing like a new outfit. I was really proud of the outfit. And these boys were just kind of terrorizing me. Now they call it bullying and there's all this language for it. There wasn't People didn't talk about that stuff now. But I watched the bus driver do nothing. And it just made me feel very invisible. So I had this really... I wasn't comfortable in my skin and I wasn't comfortable in myself. And we moved to New Hampshire. My parents, um, like the realtor, tried to only show them houses by the dump. And my mom figured it out and was like, why are you only showing us houses in this neighborhood with the dump nearby? And they fired the realtor and got a new one. But 
as non-diverse as Massachusetts was, New Hampshire was less so, if you can imagine. And so, but I met my best friend in life in those, we were only there for two years and then we moved back to Massachusetts and to North Andover, Mass. And so in those two years, I have a friendship that, uh, someone who's like a sister to me still and um, is, there's no person I am closer to than Heather. So I feel really blessed that, you know, even though it wasn't my favorite place to be, I had, there was a, you know, a bright spot in that. And uh, I feel like those are the things that I would highlight, I guess, in, yeah, my, in that's, my life. Um, that those are experiences that I didn't have growing up. Um, and so do you feel like you had to mature earlier and just kind of see the world through I mean these are just obviously questions that I have through privilege and and yeah I mean um, in retrospect yeah I didn't realize it at the time I kept a lot inside I am a natural introvert I don't it's very hard for me to to talk and share my feelings I remember my parents saying at one point uh I must have been nine years old why don't you go out and play with your friends? Cause I would just stay inside and play with my dolls and play in my own little imaginary world. I didn't feel compelled to be around people all the time. And, uh, I spent a lot of time in my own head and I think I definitely did think about things and had to mature in ways that maybe the average kid doesn't. I didn't have any other basis of knowledge though. My brother and I only an adult had recognized, realized and had conversations about a shared experience. I, he's more extroverted than me and he was always a more outgoing one, even though he was younger. So I didn't know he had the same struggles and challenges that I had. We never talked about it as kids. And so it was helpful uh, to, to know that. And I think to your point, there's a lot that I recognize now that at the time it was just my norm. And so I just lived my life. I'm, I'm an optimist by nature, as many entrepreneurs are, and I, you know, I have a lot of positive memories in my childhood, and I, I think I would go to these imaginary worlds in my head and places. I loved Anna Green Gables and all of these like random things because they brought me joy, and I felt happy there. And I'd rather be in this place of happiness, whether it was real or contrived, than deal with the things that were more challenging for me. That's cool. Um, so. I always ask this question, but I just love the immediate response of if you were asked by an adult, what do you want to be when you grow up 10 years old as a little girl, what was your response? Yeah. So I always wanted to be a teacher. I thought I loved kids and I would say a teacher, uh, at that age, I, Another thing I should say about my family, too, my parents were very strong in their sense of self. Though I was not, they were. And they, my dad wound up being very successful in business. And, uh, and he always exposed us to entrepreneurs, inventors, people who were African-American, black folks who had done things uh, in their life that were game-changing. And so at home, I had this constant reinforcement of black success, even though I, there was nothing that reflected that in the world around me. And at times I thought, there, this is crazy. Like it felt like another world because my classroom textbooks, my teachers, they were never sharing any of this information. The media, the media, the media nothing. I mean, yeah. nothing. And so, and this is, you know, growing up in the eighties, the world is different now. Um, but at that time it's, and certainly in, in Massachusetts, it just wasn't normalized. So I was fortunate that I got exposure to folks in different fields, but my, I think my experience with business, it 
was, as many children, it's something that took my dad away <laughs> from the family. Now, he is an amazing father and uh, definitely made quality time for us. But I was also aware of just how demanding and we moved, as you said, it was because of the business. And so I attributed a lot of negativity to business. <laughs> and so I knew I liked kids. My grandmother um, was an educator and it just seemed like something I could do. So we very rarely have folks on the podcast who wanted to be what they became, you know, <laughs> as a kid, like you, I mean, me, I wanted to be a point guard in the NBA, yeah. you know, there's always this crazy ideas that we have as kids. Yeah. So you, there's a sense of pragmatism to, to <laughs> <Yeah>. you. It's, <laughs> it's coming across. Yeah. So, okay. So high school, so you're back in new England yeah. for high school and what, yeah, what that's my... such a formative time yeah. where there's all this peer pressure and, yeah. Um, yeah, what was what was that like? <laughs> you can well, absolutely first, <laughs> swear on the first this. The thing that, that came to mind was it was a bit of a shit show. So I moved three times in high school. I went to three different high schools out of the four years of high school. So high school was a bit of a disaster for me. I started as a new kid in North Andover at North Andover High, and then my parents sent me after my freshman year to a private school up in New Hampshire. And so that was a terrible, like not a great experience for me. I'm not going to name it. Uh, but, and then, and then halfway through my junior year of high school, my dad took an opportunity, uh, at, uh, a location in Cincinnati, Ohio. So we moved halfway through junior year of high school <laughs> to Cincinnati, Ohio, and I finished high school there. And I had gone to public school up to sophomore year. So my last three years, uh, were private school. I chose, my parents let me choose. And honestly, the public schools in Cincinnati were, were three times the size of public schools. Like North Andover High, we had about 200 kids in a class. The high school uh, in Cincinnati had like 1,000. It was just mega high schools. And so they also gave me a choice of this um, private school that was smaller, and I felt like it, it would be more what I can handle. Mm -hmm. So I, high school was really tough. I didn't have a friend group. I'm kind of anti-cliques. I think it goes back to never wanting anyone to feel left out. I don't like the idea of socializing in a singular circle and then you don't belong and these people belong because I felt so isolated. I never felt like I belonged. I never wanted to be part of something that made other people not belong. So I was just sort of friends with different people, uh, but I was so shy. It took me a while to build friendships. Again, soccer wound up being the thing that helped me socialize. I played soccer all through high school and I often just made friends with people that I played with. I was a good soccer player. So that kind of helped me meet people and thank God for soccer. Cause I, in school, I mean, my brother said when he moved to Cincinnati, like people are asking me why you don't talk. <laughs> and I'm like, like I was deathly shy. I would get sick to the point of vomiting before our first day of school. Like it was very stressful. And so I don't have fond memories <laughs> of high school. I don't have really close friendships. So there are people that I keep in touch with on social media who are great people. I mean, I think the people that I did meet and become solid friends with, I would still be friends with today if we lived in the same place, but yeah. there just weren't many of them and they were sprinkled in three different places. <laughs> it's funny. I, I was really outgoing as a kid, but you and I shared that same sense of, and I, maybe it came from our parents. I know it did for me of, 
always being exposed to lots of different types of people mm-hmm. and um, feeling like that enriched our lives. Mm-hmm. And so I was into basketball and soccer, and so I had those friends, but also in some of my nerdier classes, like I had a foot in the nerds group and, you know, and in lots of different groups because yeah. the reality is, is while we may not want to be isolated in one group or another, those groups do naturally form. And right. it's just up to us to, I always tell people I'm kind of like an Australian sheepdog. I like try and like herd people from different <laughs> groups into, so they can meet up yeah. together. Yeah. And it sounds like you have a little bit of that too. Yeah. I've noticed in my adulthood, I'm a connector. People have told me like, I like connecting and bringing people together and being in community with one another that are different. I think that's what makes our society rich. So yeah. yeah. So, um, so we're going to talk about uh, the decision to go to college, and you went to Boston College. Mm-hmm. Um, you have two kids. I have two kids. And I think also I want to kind of like overlay the question with your kids are a little younger than mine, and um, Bren is like, she's nine. in what? Nine. So that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Fourth or fifth grade. Fourth grade. Yeah. Fourth fourth grade. grade. All right. So I have a junior in high school. And so we're very actively doing college tours and Mm -hmm. all of this. And I do have that East Coast mentality where college is such an important decision and all of that. And that is a generalization. Not all East Coast people think that. But I just I always find it fascinating of, um, you know, what goes into that decision of where you go to college and and you already knew from 10 years old that you wanted to be an educator so you studied education mm-hmm. in college and i just like what how how was that whole process did you tour a bunch of colleges did you know you absolutely were going to go to college in a particular area of the country like um I we did tour different schools in New England I knew that I wanted to get back to New England from Cincinnati I think you know many people would say Cincinnati is a lovely place it was a culture shock to me to move um, from a small New England town to a midwestern area that was actually very southern in a lot of ways and I know you're from the south um you know, um, <laughs> neutral state, Maryland, but I did go to college at University of Virginia in the yeah, South. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I was a little fearful of the South. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, all the racial overlays. It's the Ku Klux Klan put up a cross every year in Cincinnati Town Square. And I saw my first Confederate flag. So, like, there were things that I saw in Cincinnati that I just wasn't exposed to. And I it just didn't feel safe for me. So I was just focused on get me back to New England. That was, like, step one. I think BC, I remember going to visit BC. I actually had flown out and met with one of my best friends from my high school there, Matt, at the time. And he met me uh, in Boston at the college and we toured it together. And it was just, it was not too big. It was, uh, you see this sort of pattern, I don't like large institutions. And it was not right in the in the heart of Boston it was on the outskirts so there was nature there and can I just stop you for a yeah. second so you are the youngest chairperson of one of the largest <laughs> colleges in Oregon yeah, um, yeah. called Portland Community College yeah. uh, so there is some irony in that yeah well c- yes <laughs> okay <laughs> Uh, it's different when you're attending <laughs> the the university or college. Um, 
But I liked that it was on the outskirts and that there was nature. It was it was a beautiful campus. And I think also, you know, I grew up in a home that had a really strong spiritual foundation. My parents, it was definitely a Christian family. And while I didn't want to go to a Christian college, um, BC is a Jesuit school. So there had there was some structure of spirituality that I felt like was good, but not oppressive. It wasn't like you had to go to mass or you had to um, sort of study those things. But I liked that it was there. That felt so it was there was all these different pieces of my childhood, really, that I felt BC represented now. And I had a great experience at BC, lifelong friends. So while I didn't have lifelong high school friends, I do have lifelong college friends. And my college roommates are still um, dear friends that I talk to um, pretty regularly um, beyond just social media. And we, you know, we try to meet up when I'm home. And so it was a formative thing. I, I wasn't focused at the time on diversity and equity, even though you would think with all of my experiences growing up that I would have thought more about that component. And I think I have asked my parents about it at the time, like, why didn't we see any HBCUs or, you know, Howard or... And I think they historically black colleges. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. Our because I was clearly hungry still for community, uh, ethnic community connection. Uh, and I actually joined the like I was on the multicultural floor. I checked that off at BC so I could be with the people of color when I went there. But I think my mother said, well, we thought about HBCU for for you, but we thought it might be overwhelming because you have never lived in a place where there was even close to um, <laughs> a, a dominant presence of of folks. But so in retrospect, I wish I had thought of that because um, since then, I know so many people that have graduated from HBCUs and it was like game changing experiences for them. But I, who grew up similar to me. But I, uh, I I had a great experience at BC, lifelong friends, great education. Um, and it was wonderful being near Boston, like being in the city, but not. And so we went into the city a lot, but I loved still having nature there. Now, were there any, as you look at high school and college, which I think is this massively independent foundational stage, were there any life moments that were either like one major kind of obstacle that you overcame or one moment of independence that it's not a surprise of the success of where you are today that kind of happened um, in those foundational years? I think, I mean, the biggest obstacle was definitely racism. I mean, um, not believing what I felt the world was telling me about myself as a black female and what I could accomplish and what I could be. I, you know, my, I tested into AP and then the school, this was my junior or senior year of high school. I tested into AP English but then they wouldn't let me be in the class and my mother had to get involved. And my mother actually had to get involved a number of times because of discrimination in school. So the things that I experienced related to the skin that I'm in definitely were obstacles. And it, I don't say that like, oh, woe is me. Um, in many ways, I had a, a privileged uh, life, but I there were definitely barriers. There was... Um, yeah, I had to fight harder. People, you, you'll hear black people say you have to be twice as good, work twice as hard. And there's truth to that. Um, people do not assume that you are worthy uh, or that you're smart. And there are active forces sometimes pushing you uh, in different directions. And so I was blessed to have two parents that 
loved me and were college educated themselves and they both went they went to Penn and my dad went to Wharton like they were well and they had to fight for their education too so they already knew the game they already had to deal with professors and teachers like that so they were prepared to be advocates for me and I think again this is why I, education mattered and I was re remembering BC also had a very good education program um, for teaching it was one in the top five at the time so um, I think it all feeds into why I do <laughs> the work that I do. And I, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is, uh, again, I mean, just hearing your story, I just haven't had to face that being in dominant culture and being a white male. And um, it's disappointing that the world is the way it is, but that's why we're doing the work that we do. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so, okay, so right after college, and you and I have had uh, conversations around this where you, you went into the Peace Corps in yeah. South Africa, and that was like this really big moment in yeah. your life because it was, I don't know, freeing. It was adventure, but it was so much learning all at once. And like, I, I would love for everybody to hear what that was like and what, what stood out to you in that. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> so South Africa was a super powerful experience. I knew I wanted to join the Peace Corps by my junior year of, of college. I didn't even try to get an internship doing anything else. I I didn't apply for any job. I remember thinking senior year, God, if I don't get in, I'm going to be in trouble. I don't have a backup plan. And I think it came from this you know, Pollyanna-ish, I want to save the world and make it a better place perspective. I was involved. So I had played soccer all of my life, and I sort of forego scholarships uh, to play because they were all uh, Ohio-based schools, and I didn't want to stay in Ohio. So I, I could have walked on, uh, but I realized, like, there were all these things I was really passionate about that I never got to explore. So I joined the Peace and Justice Coalition, the Environmental Action Group. If you ask my college roommates, like, I was gone all the time. I, it's still my greatest challenge is not taking on too much, even in college. You, you're not <laughs> succeeding at that at all, by the way. Even in college, because there's just so much that I want to do to impact the world. And, and that has been a consistent a theme for me and I can't explain what drives it it just is there and so uh, the opportunity I, ch I studied abroad my junior year of college and was in London I sort of took a safe route because I thought well at least I know the language <laughs> but that was my first like oh my gosh there's so much more than this this country and so I knew I wanted to go to Africa and I had put that you can't choose the country but you can um, have a choice of continent and uh, I, you know, it was it was game changing and eye opening in a lot of ways. I realized in the Peace Corps I did not want to teach. I thought education was so powerful and it reinforced that for me because in South Africa during apartheid, they had a Bantu education system that really wasn't uh, an education system that reinforced critical thinking skills or entrepreneurial things like anything that was good for sort of cognitive development. It was more of a rote learning, jump when I say jump. And I could see the impact of that on that society and the adults. And it was, and obviously apartheid itself was traumatic. So there were huge implications for the people of South Africa not having um, 
a quality education system. And part of my job there was to teach and to teach teachers and um, also teach uh, middle school. And I knew education was important, but I knew that I didn't want to teach. I also had an opportunity for the first time to do something entrepreneurial. I didn't have a word for it then, but I loved just meeting with people in the community. I was in a small village in the mountains. I could reach the top of the mountain in like 20 minutes from my little home in my village. It was all dirt road. It was that reddish soil that was terrible when it rains. It's like uh, peanut butter (laughs) almost. And I would wear like these, you know, tall, uh, galoshes yes that were black up to my knees and um there were mango trees and papaya it was beautiful and i got to know the women in particular there was a lot of isms in south africa and i was there three years post-apartheid i think we're the we were the third or the fourth group to be in that country so we were new. We were the first ones in our village and in our region. So they had never had Peace Corps volunteers, which is significant because in a lot of Peace Corps countries, they you have communities that are used to having Peace Corps volunteers. And so the the road has you know has been <laughs> greased or you know everything has been laid. And that was not the case. So we were and we were given these really nebulous titles of school and community resource volunteers. So you could you you had flexibility, but people tended to do what they what they were studying to do, right? Or what they had been doing in their careers. So as an educator that, you know, I initially just taught, but as I spoke with these women um, who were incredible and were the backbone of the society, surprise, surprise, uh, they had a dream of creating a village, a a bakery, a village bakery, Um, access to clean water, access to food there was nothing in the village everything they had to go to a neighboring town and these little what they called kumbis which weren't really safe transportation or they walked and so I wanted the women to I wanted to support these women in in supporting their vision and realizing their vision so I can't take credit I mean I think on my resume I talk about supporting it I definitely did not create the the bakery but I gave the platform for them to have conversations I wound up because I have access in the west you know to all these materials and research I you know it was before internet really so I didn't have access to any technology but I had books mailed to me I would go into the city to get things so I can learn about starting a business and like what does it take Uh, so I did a lot of sort of self-research and then I would share with the women what I learned I never felt like I had the authority to teach them because I I didn't have a business background and I never started anything but I felt that my role there was to bring tools that could support them in their vision that I did have privilege and I had access to resources and so I tried really hard to bring the resources that I had access to to the women and support them in their vision and um, same with the the library project so that was really um, invigorating for me and it made me realize I loved starting things and being part of something that was more community development based. I also realized I could do that so much easier in my own country (laughs) where there weren't the same cultural barriers. Uh, And so when I got back, I, I knew that I was going to do something more creative and that was community based. Uh, I think the other thing that South Africa did, South Africa is a stunning country 
um, with a troubled soul and apartheid ravaged the soul of that country and it was still very palpable like I said it was only a few years post-apartheid so I had never experienced racism like I experienced in South Africa to the point where people sometimes white people would not um, put change in my hand they put it on the counter because they didn't want to touch my hand and um, invisibility I read Invisible Man when I was there because I finally understood. I was experiencing that level of racism that, mind you, I already told you, I had experienced stuff before. So, But these were the things my grandparents experienced. And knowing that, I read a lot of civil rights books during that time because the things that my parents had been telling me my whole life, they made me watch Eyes on the Prize, and they, they would say all this stuff that I was like, my parents are crazy militant <laughs> people. No, they were just very educated about the history of America, and they wanted me to. And it was so hard for me to digest, again, because I wasn't learning it anywhere else. As I read these civil rights books, I understand what my parents and grandparents had to go through in a really visceral way. And that had a profound change. And that was when I knew I wanted to work and serve black children and families, like that the black community um, was important to me. And that what, what had happened in civil rights in the US had happened nowhere else in the world. So there were a lot of countries that had oppression and oppressive regimes. But the fact that our community had come so far, it gave me this sense of pride in our people as black Americans. Like there's all this like tie of wanting to like go back to Africa and Africa. But I felt there like I'm not African American, I'm a black American. My experience as a black person in America is not the experience as a black person in Africa. And my people in this country have done a lot and have overcome a lot to be who they are. And my dad in particular, you know, sec my grandfather was first generation American from the West Indies. Um, my dad grew up in the projects with nothing and like his career trajectory and his whole life trajectory was unbelievable. And so you like, you just got, and knowing all the forces, the forces that I had to deal with, he had to deal with it twofold. And then my grandfather had to deal with it threefold. Uh, and so it gave me this renewed empowerment and uh, my parents were sort of like, Wow, because they knew that I never wanted to hear their story. It was in there. It <laughs> yeah. was in, deep inside you. And it, it... They were blown away. And uh, I think it was what brought me into both entrepreneurship and social justice work in a really concrete way for the rest of my career. I just had a moment of listening to you. And, um, you know, my racial equity journey started about three and a half years ago. And... I just realized when, as you were talking, like education and the intentionality for which things in our history are omitted, like for my own education, I learned absolutely the dominant culture education in all of these ways. And, and it was only, you know, like I said, just over three years ago where I just, you know, started realizing all these things in Portland of like that it was built in the 1800s as a white utopia and that only you know 20 or 30 years ago redlining of where you know black people could own homes um by the banking system uh was uplifted and I think all the way into like the 90s there were some things which is there. significant because wealth is generated through home ownership and right. so when you look at wealth gaps like those things had deleterious impacts for generations right. um, my grandfather didn't 
he he served in the war but didn't get to benefit from the GI bill right. because he was a black man right. and my parents my grandparents on my mother's side had to use a Jewish this was my mother's father they had to use a Jewish attorney uh to sort of be them to purchase their first home because they would never have let them purchase the home. So there was just yeah. all these layers that yeah. I think impact so many in our community that people don't know about. And what's hard is because they don't know, there's all these things. Well, they just don't work hard. They're just lazy. And it's mm -hmm. like, are you kidding me? Like yeah. you have no idea. Right. And that what, you know, like for so many of my white peers in especially me like we're so shocked that Trump won and what I've been educated on is is like no he is perfect example of how the system is working exactly as it is designed like yeah. the constitution is built on yes. <laughs> land owning white yeah. men having rights and women not having any rights yeah. until the 1920s yeah. you know and so on and so on it's yeah. just like all this compounding effect and that education does not happen and has not happened to 95% of my white male CEO peers around the country. And therefore, we perpetuate this, this narrative that is, is false. It's very, I think, because it focuses so much on uh, what our history books say and omits, like omitting this whole other side to things means that you're, there's a huge miseducation. Yeah. 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 So anyway. <laughs> Speaking well, of my language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we're, we've got to skip the part of, uh, or maybe you can just touch on it really quick. You got your master's at Harvard, but I, I want to get to Kairos. Like, okay. give me, like, how'd you up in, end up in Portland and you started this amazing nonprofit with four other great women? Yeah, so, I mean, if you couldn't tell from my decision just to go to the Peace Corps, I have a, a strong free spirit <laughs> element of me, and I wanted to live on the West Coast. And after the Peace Corps, I, I lived in Connecticut for a year. That's where my parents are now. But I just wanted to be somewhere different, so I drove cross-country. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a plan. <laughs> I just, you know, why not? I was in my mid-20s, and I could. And so I ended up in Portland. I had a friend who knew... I had one friend here and um, and then another friend who knew folks. So I didn't have a community here. I just knew that the West Coast was more progressive politically, and, and that appealed to me. And I didn't know about the history of Oregon <laughs> at the time. Uh, but I think the mindset of people here... You know, people talk about Portland as liberal, but then in race relations, it's not. But I got to say, like, I think Portland is more progressive than liberals sometimes give it credit for. Um, there, It does have a tainted history, for sure. And there is still some pervasive elements, but it doesn't compare to what I experienced in, in the Northeast. And so I think because things are so traditional and tradition is so entrenched, then whiteness becomes more entrenched in, in the Northeast. In Northeast. Mm -hmm. And here there's so many more people that have come from different places. And I think the West coast mentality is a little more inclusive for lack of a better word. It's sort of uh, a shoes tradition and, you know, this idea of being, renaissance or renegade like unique is um valued and so there aren't rules here there aren't traditions here in the same way and i think it has enabled oregonians and certainly portlanders to have real conversations about race whether they figured it out or not the fact that the conversation is happening is 
the fact that like you just said what you said on a podcast, like that is powerful and that is meaningful and that does not happen everywhere. So I, um, anyway, I came to Portland not knowing what I was going to do. Uh, got involved in the Urban League Young Professionals and did different jobs. Ultimately, Kairos came about, I think, I had worked for Mayor Mayor Adams for four years, and in that time, I was I, I had the uh, opportunity to sit at a lot of tables with uh, leaders in education, and we were talking about achievement gaps and opportunity gaps and disparities that had been in existence for decades. And we looked at a lot of data and you know, exchange spreadsheets. And I got really tired of talking about these things and not seeing enough examples of things that were actually moving the needle. I knew that education was important. That's why I went into education. That I knew that it was game-changing, and I saw how the access to education changed my family's trajectory and, and certainly gave me opportunities in life. So the fact that black children were failing, and not just black children, Native American children, children that speak second languages, children with disabilities, were failing at such high rates in Portland schools, I just thought it was unconscionable. Like, how, how do we not educate? And I wanted to put something into the universe of things that looked and felt different than the schools were. I also had an experience uh, when I first moved to Portland, I worked out at what is no longer in existence as a school, but Marshall High School. I also, I, I had two jobs. <laughs> I worked for a school-based program that was based at Marshall High School and Binsmead Middle School. Binsmead also is no longer Binsmead. And then I worked at Albertina Kerr as well in their subacute unit. I've always had this interest in both mental health and education and the intersectionality between the two. And uh, in that time, I worked with a group of students that uh, were African-American. They had asked me to do like a lunch group because there was a Slavic lunch group and there was a Latino lunch group and they wanted a, a lunch group for black kids. And, and so I agreed to do it. That wasn't what I was there to do, but it was something that I agreed to do as an extra. And uh, I used to share with them what my parents would share with me, which were people that had been successful that looked like us. And um, I shared one of the stories I shared was just a person. It was actually someone who was real that I knew. Uh, I kept his name out of it, but I was like sharing his trajectory and uh, the kids didn't believe that it was real. And uh, these are sixth graders, you know, at 11 years old, they could not suspend belief that you could overcome uh, poverty and um, and racism to, to be successful in business. And it broke my heart and I never forgot it. And I thought, how does a, what is happening when 11 or 12 year olds can't dream for something bigger? And so I think starting Kairos was, I, I carried it with me and I felt like creating something that looks and feels different means helping children understand at a young age that anything is possible for them, that they are valuable, that they are brilliant, that they have something to offer the world. And I think, you know, that coupled with my own experiences of invisibility, I wanted all children to know, like, I see you, like, I see you, I see you, I see you. And never to have ele elementary school and early childhood education is like the formative years. That is, that builds the base to everything. And I know, you know, there's so much brain research, neuroscience now that explains how impactful that is. So knowing that I wanted to create a space that, that was very different. And, uh, 
I, I didn't know what I was getting myself into, <laughs> you know, I, in reflection, all of the programs and jobs that I had in Portland were starting something. They were just starting things within other organizations, but this entrepreneurial streak, again, in the social sector there, people don't use the word entrepreneur. It's a dirty word. Yeah. So I didn't know that that's what I was, but I knew I liked starting things from scratch. And so starting Kairos, I think, you know, I, I messaged Zalika, who is a co-founder and um, she's our director of education and really sort of the principal at the school. And she, I was like, what do you think about starting a school? And, you know, she was like, you know, I've had the same idea. And we both, uh, she went to Columbia. I went to Harvard and we both had to do, um, these projects where we had to create a school concept. And so I remember like going through my emails, my Yahoo account that I never use to find like my paper that I had done. That, Cause I remember I had to email it in that explained my school concept. And we just sort of went from there and brought other folks in, uh, not fully knowing what we were, what we were doing. Yeah. So <laughs> talk about, um, how different Kairos is in how you approach the curriculum than Portland or than a public school system as far as you were touching on it, but I, I want the audience to hear this notion of like um, that there is neuroscience science behind how you create that space of yeah. love and all that, but then there's breathing techniques and all mm -hmm. of these things so that the whole person is brought to being fully receptive to learning how to think critically and all of these things. Yeah. And it's like K through five, right, at this point? Yeah, and we do some early learning work for families as well, um, for younger children, zero to five. Um, I, you know... We leaned heavily into the what I call the neuroscience of love. Um, there is a lot of brain research that tells us that when children are under stress, it sets off the amygdala, which is, you know, the the part of the brain that is always helping protect us. And so, um, I think it's the RAS system that is activated and is looking. It's the watchdog. And when something doesn't feel safe the amygdala puts us in that fight or flight or freeze response. And so a lot of times schools are not places that are welcoming and that children are feeling safe in. And so when young children are entering a school environment, they don't feel safe, knowing that that's what's going on in their brain. Essentially the prefrontal cortex, I'm getting a little nerdy about it, but the prefrontal cortex shuts down. The prefrontal cortex is what you need to be able to make decisions, control impulses. It's, it's, it, is, it is central to learning. And so knowing that the space you create for children impacts the brain's ability to learn and function optimally, for me, was like mind-blowing. And when I was studying to be a teacher, this neuroscience was not there. So in the 90s, um, they didn't know this stuff. Fast forward, though, 20 years, and like so much more is known. And I felt like if we know this to be true, then why don't we focus on creating environments where children belong, know they belong. There has also been research that there's a long-standing uh, Harvard research study that talked about 
in order for adults to thrive, they need to be in communities of belonging that are loving and caring. And so it's not that that's the only thing that matters, but from a learning context, you want to you want those neural connections to be made in the brain. The other thing that happens when the prefrontal cortex breaks down, so does the neural connection between that and the hippocampus. The hippocampus is where our memory is. You don't learn or retain. If you can't retain what you learn, it's, it's useless. <laughs> so um, to know the memory is impacted as well by these stressors that children experience, I think, reinforce for us. You have to create a space. And it's not just good. We serve predominantly African-American kids, but this is important for all children. There are many children who are outliers who don't fit in uh, for various reasons. And we are not optimizing their brain's capacity to learn when we create spaces that are toxic for them. And that's what happens. A disproportionate discipline issue, you know, at four, year old, four years old for children to be thrown out of class, what does that say? Like, that doesn't make it a place that children want to be. So Kairos focuses on a climate of inclusion and cultural relevance. So children know that they're seen and valued. We And culture is more than just people of color. We all have culture. And so how do you reflect culture for all children in your building. Uh, we have mindful practice. So there are techniques that you can do when the brain is stressed. The brain can get back to a place where it is functioning healthily, but it requires different practices like breathing and mindfulness and um, sort of calming yourself to be able to get your brain back ready to learn. And so we employ a lot of mindful practice uh, at Kairos. We... Um, the practice of reflection is another big thing. Our educators and instructional staff, uh, you have to be aware of that as the person interacting with the child. We have our own triggers and our own stresses. And so unless we employ reflective practice in education, we will always go to what is easiest. And what is easiest is often not best for children. So when you go through a power struggle with a child in the classroom, which is what happens, which is what leads to disproportionate discipline, which, by the way, is correlated with incarceration rates, um, you, you are creating a dynamic that has this you know, terrible rabbit trail. But when you are reflective and aware, you can make different decisions. Social-emotional health is another big thing, and we have what we call the habits of success. And they include things like optimism and curiosity and gratitude and things that really are about supporting the whole child and what we know we that we did not just make them up we did a literature review in our first year of operation looking at the success particularly of african-american children ages zero to ten and these were the things that rose to the top that the research said as important as the academic skills are math language arts science if children are strong in those academic areas but don't have these other things, they're less likely to be successful. Mm -hmm. And you can appreciate as an entrepreneur, like curiosity is, is a perfect example of something. I think that the most entrepreneurial people had opportunities to be curious as children. And what happens particularly to black children, curiosity is seen as obstinance or um, insubordination, which is the most common reason for children to be disciplined, black children to be dis black boys in particular, to be disciplined in schools is for insubordination, which is completely subjective. It's the teacher just deciding that that child doesn't want to learn. Uh, but you can't be curious and explore and like follow the rules. They go hand in hand. And so we create safe spaces for that. And I believe actually we are building the future entrepreneurs. Uh, we don't, that is not what we market, but I know that this is the foundation for them to be leaders and game changers in, in the future. Awesome. So 
two questions left, and so there is a lot in that, and I just thought about that segue to, to marketing. It's like you, two things. One, you're trying to change an entire system that our country is built off of, and how do you market that? And two, there's a lot of nerdy stuff that you said, and the front part of that would like my brain and my hippocampus and my prefrontal, like, like people can only remember one or two things in marketing. And I am saying all this while wearing your oh, t-shirt <laughs> of hate lowers it. down your heart. I love it. Some super cute little <laughs> five-year-old said at one point and you put it on a t-shirt and it's been selling. Um, but how do you market Kairos when you're trying to do so you're trying to get so many messages across. Yeah. yeah. How do you how do you simplify and and position like the one main thing that you want people to remember about Kairos? And and is has there been a campaign that has worked really well for we you? We have not done a campaign. <laughs> um, I think that the marketing is the hard part. Honestly, I I. I speak with passion about what I know, and I think that has helped us market the importance of the work. Because you're a very public figure speaking in a lot of places. I, I have the opportunity to speak in different places. And, you know, I, I worked in policy. You know, I didn't – I kind of glossed over that part. But I spent 10 years doing policy work. I worked for the Department of Ed. I worked for um, the city, the county. And so I my master's was in public policy with a concentration in education policy I went into policy very deliberately I, I decided and I actually was choosing between that and a more standard public policy program in New York and I I wanted to go into policy because I believe system change is what was necessary policies needed to change because they were hindering what I was trying to do on the ground as someone who started as a practitioner, I could see how the policies were my barrier. And so I'm like, I got to know the policies so I can get, change them to eliminate some of these barriers. And I think from a system change, that's why I lean into system change. I sort of had this background of seeing how the system was set up, seeing who the players were, and recognizing where there might be opportunities to push. And we continue to push. But I don't want to have success for just a group of children here. I, I want this success to bleed in. Bleed is the wrong word. I want it to impact the greater system and to prove that we can do things differently overall and to be able to scale not just in Oregon but scale outside of Oregon the practices that we're doing, which are not rocket science. They are based in research, yes, and they may sound nerdy, but they are really simple things I I think if I had to choose a word I think you know we talk about choose love like it sounds so hokey and I am you mentioned earlier I'm a bit of a pragmatist like I don't like the touchy-feely stuff it's not I've learned about vulnerability over the years but it is not where I feel comfortable at all <laughs> but I know that Love affects us at a cellular level. It affects us genetically over generations. Like there is a positive element to love. And when you know that, when you know it impacts the brain and when you know it impacts somebody, when you know it impacts your physical health, like leaning into love becomes more than just a squishy, like feel good thing. It is a practical science-based thing as well. And if schools choose love, I, I guarantee you 
in in its real sense of the word not like I am going to love is high expectations love is not letting kids just pass it's holding them to high expectation and seeing their value and helping them reach their goals like if we do that we will see differences in our educational system that was beautiful thank you so last question is just a person who's really inspiring you either throughout your life or right in this moment yeah, that one was a hard one. <laughs> there are so many people ins- that uh, inspire me. You can pick two or three, but we... You yeah, know, you got to wind it down. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so my favorite thing to do, I love watching documentaries and biopics, and I love reading biographies. And I'm reading Michelle Obama's uh, Becoming right now, and it's super inspiring, and I'm loving it. And um, her life and her journey... Are, are just really inspiring and it's amazing. I feel really fortunate that I can read a book about a black female who was a first lady of the United States. I did not think that that would happen in my lifetime. And um, I hope to read a book about the first president of the United States, female president of the United States, whatever color she may be. I do hope that that comes. But the unique perspective of her as a black female in the skin, wearing the same skin that I'm in, um, having the same you know barriers and opportunities and ways, and uh, where that has taken her and what she has learned along the way is has been really profound. And I'm not even finished. <laughs> well, that was a beautiful interview. I, like I always say, I learn that much more about my friends and I feel enriched by it. So thank you, Kali. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs>